Sustainable futures. In my book, a sustainable business is a business that will be here this year, next year, and in 10, 20, or more years from now. It needs to manage change. Change in its environment. Change in its stakeholder expectations. Change in the market. Change in the supply chain. Change in the world. To manage change successfully, you first have to see it coming. Every week, the Sustainable Futures Show brings you news, facts and opinions about changes in the sustainable world. My aim is to bring you everything that's important and interesting to help you manage change. The Sustainable Futures Show website has just had a makeover. You'll find it at www.susbiz.biz, that's S-U-S-B-I-Z dot B-I-Z. And there's now a facility for a keyword search, as well as access to all the archives, which go back to 2007. Chinese Whispers. Hello, this is Anthony Day. In this week's episode, we look at steel and the Chinese, electricity and the Chinese, and the circular economy comes round again. There are more doubts about the Department of Energy and Climate Change, doubts about whether the UK is really serious about reducing carbon emissions. If you really want to take us out of the fossil fuel world into clean technology and meet affordable clean energy for everybody, then that investment shouldn't be undermined by radical removal of subsidies in a very short period. And doubts about whether this is a good time to stop supporting solar. By the way, the consultation on the feed-in tariff is still open, just... If you're listening to this on the morning of Friday the 23rd of October, you have until 11.45 this morning to get your comments in. Last week we had bad news from the steelworks in Redcar when its operating company SSI went into liquidation, forcing the plant to close, putting the greater part of Redcar's workforce out of work. This week, Kapari, another steel company, has gone into administration and Tata Steel, which took over British Steel, has announced thousands of redundancies and closures across England, Scotland and Wales. Writing in the Daily Mail, Dominic Lawson puts this down to the high cost of energy in the UK and blames fanatical environmentalists. Yes, industrial users do pay a climate change levy on their fuel bills. Everyone does, apart from domestic users, small businesses and charities. It's designed to pay for research and development into renewable energy and also to encourage organisations to use less energy and to use it more efficiently. Energy use leads to carbon emissions. Emissions cause climate change. You know the rest. But Dominic Lawson, son of arch-denialist Lord Lawson, does not believe in climate change. However, while there is this levy on energy use, major energy users like steel and many other industrial groups have negotiated climate change agreements. This allows them a 90% rebate on the climate change levy for electricity and 65% for other fuels in return for increasing efficiency. Despite this, the spokesman for the Energy Intensive Users Group 
told the BBC this week that British industry was paying around twice as much for its energy as its competitors in Europe. He agreed that we should be subsidising alternative forms of energy, but he pointed out that if only the UK was acting in this way, his industry was uncompetitive. The result was not a reduction in emissions, it simply drove the emissions and the business offshore. The government blames the Chinese for dumping cheap steel onto the market and have promised to talk to Chinese President Xi Jinping about it during this week's state visit. Since the start of 2015, world steel prices have fallen by over 30%. Some steel is now cheaper than it was five years ago. Last week's short-term outlook report from the World Steel Association, worldsteel.org, predicts a fall in global steel output of 1.7% for 2015, followed by a growth of 0.7% in 2016. This, they say, depends on what happens in China. Demand for steel in China is on track for a 3.5% fall in 2015 and a further 2% fall in 2016. So the predicted rise in global output for 2016 will depend on rising demand from the developed nations. It will be too late for Redcar and all the rest. This is not a political show, but I do believe that the government must have seen this coming. With a strengthening pound and a relatively high labour cost, the UK steel industry was likely to be among the first to be squeezed out by falling prices and falling demand. I don't believe in artificial support for uncompetitive industries, but I do believe that there could have been a managed exit, and I strongly believe that there should be investment in retraining and industrial regeneration in the steel towns. We should do better than we did in the coal fields. I mentioned the circular economy. In March 2014, I reported on a major conference organised by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation at Bradford University. You can find this in the archive on this show's website, www.susbiz.biz. S-U-S-B-I-Z dot B-I-Z. You can also find the full text with extensive links to related documents on my blog, which is at anthonyday.blogspot.co.uk. On this occasion, that's Anthony Day without a hyphen in the middle. I mention the circular economy because it's potentially a partial solution, a sustainable solution to the steel problem, at least in the long term. Our traditional economy is based on take, make, discard. That means that when we have finished with a product, whatever it is, we throw it away and get a new one. And that means we start again from scratch. If we want a new car, we need iron and steel, and we start by digging up iron ore and digging up coal to smelt it. We use energy in all those processes and we use energy to form and finish the final components. When we finally throw that car away, we are not just throwing away our steel and copper and plastic and all the other materials that go to make it. We are also throwing away the benefit of the energy that was used in its manufacture and the labour which was used as well. The longer we can prolong the life of that car or of its components, the more value we are getting from that energy and labour. 
This is where the circular economy comes in. It's about far more than just recycling. The circular economy starts with the design of a product for perpetual reuse. This means that it's designed from the beginning to be taken apart, repaired and refurbished. It may even belong to the manufacturer throughout its life and be leased to the consumer, who constantly has a product in perfect condition, maintained or replaced by the manufacturer as necessary. We do that already with some cars, at least for the first part of their lives. When the product comes to the very end of its life, it can be dismantled and the individual materials can be recycled. The objective is to send nothing to landfill and to minimise the input of materials from new sources and therefore eliminate the energy and labour involved in extracting new materials. Of course, steel is an industry where much scrap is already recycled. Another example is aluminium. Rexam, which makes about 7 million aluminium drinks cans per hour, yes, that's right, 7 million aluminium drinks cans per hour, recycles some 70% globally. In Brazil, the recycling rate is 98%. Have a look at the sustainability report on their website for more information. That's rexam.com, R-E-X-A-M.com. This recycling is made possible because of the nature of the material. Aluminium can be recycled indefinitely. Other materials are not recycled. Some of them cannot be recycled, but many can. Many products are not designed with recycling or repair in view. They're cheaper to make and can be thrown away when they stop working. The manufacturer doesn't have to pay disposal costs. There is great scope for increased efficiency and economy of materials. It means doing things differently to get the same or better results. It means embracing change. Are you ready for change? Some people want to change DEC, the Department of Energy and Climate Change. In fact, as I reported a few weeks ago, they want to abolish it altogether. Kenneth Campbell of Big Green Book, that's biggreenbook.com, warns me that the second reading of the Department of Energy and Climate Change Abolition Bill will take place in Parliament next Friday the 30th of October. Could we be about to abolish the department responsible for managing our response to climate change just before COP21, the International Conference on Climate Change, to be held in Paris in December? You couldn't make it up. Professor Jacqueline McLean is not impressed. She's the chief scientist at the UN Environmental Programme, and you heard her earlier. Interviewed on BBC Radio 4 Today programme, she said that the UK government's reduced support for renewables was sending worrying signals, particularly now, just before the Paris conference. It was no example to young people to stimulate a new technological business, develop a world lead and then cut the ground from beneath it. This week has seen not only long-established steel companies fail, but high-tech solar companies as well. But will solar power ever be really economically viable? More feedback. David Abbott of Insight Best Practice, that's Insight bp.co.uk sends me an article from the Washington Post headlined The Coming Era of Unlimited and Free Clean Energy. Apparently in the 1980s consultants McKinsey & Co were very sceptical about the future of mobile phones. 
They predicted that it would take 20 years to reach an installed base of 900,000 units. They advised telecoms giant AT&T to pull out. In fact, there were more than 100 million cell phones in use in 2000. There are billions now. Costs have fallen so far that even the poor all over the world can afford a cellular phone. Solar power could be at the same stage now as mobile phones were in the 1980s. The price of solar panels has fallen by 75% in the last five years alone, and the fall continues. Once installed, the panels deliver energy for at least 20 years, and the fuel, sunlight, is free. Renewables in general are becoming more attractive. Wind power, for example, has also come down sharply in price and is now competitive with the cost of new coal-burning power plants. Batteries and other forms of energy storage are rapidly developing as well. The result of this will be a radical restructuring of energy markets. First, there will be disruption to the entire fossil fuel industry, starting with utility companies, which will face declining demand and then bankruptcy. This is beginning already. Several of them see the writing on the wall. The smart ones are embracing solar and wind power. Others are lobbying to stop the progress of solar power at all costs. They seem to be doing this pretty well in the UK. By the time you hear this, Chinese President Xi Jinping is expected to have signed some 150 trade agreements with the UK. This includes financial support for Hinkley C nuclear power station and a commitment to build three new nuclear power stations at Sizewell and Bradwell. You may have reservations about doing business with the Chinese or about using nuclear technology, but my concerns, as expressed several times before, are about the timescale. According to main contractor EDF, Hinkley C will not be ready until after 2023 although there is still no firm date for completion. New stations at Sizewell and Bradwell will come along sometime after that. Meanwhile, most of our nuclear and coal stations are coming to the end of their lives and must be decommissioned by 2020. If you read the latest Private Eye magazine, you'll see that the government is preparing for power blackouts of up to five days this winter. I won't tell you any more about it, because I don't want to worry you. Here's an idea for solving our short-term energy problems. Why don't we invest in developing and manufacturing solar panels and wind turbines, generating systems which can be produced and installed in months rather than decades? We could have a whole lot up and running well before our oldest power stations start coming offline. We'd need factory space and a skilled workforce. Where would we find that? Uh, what about Redcar or Scunthorpe? No, that must be a silly idea. Well, that's it for another week. I'm just off for a Chinese, but I'll be back next Friday with the next episode of the Sustainable Futures Show. I'm Anthony Day. Have a great weekend. And that's all for now. Well, nearly all. Just one thing. One more thing. Last week I asked who it was who said prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. No, it wasn't Groucho Marx. It wasn't Yogi Berra. It wasn't even Sam Goldwyn. Apparently, it was physicist Niels Bohr. Although he might have got it from somebody else.
Thank you.